This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Lumigo. On this episode, Rebecca and I chat with Simon Wardley about mapping the inevitability of serverless. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 110. I'm Jeremy Daly. And I'm Rebecca Marshburn. And this is Serverless Chats. Welcome back. Rebecca, how you doing? It's Serverless Chats. I'm doing good. That's all I got to say. Uh, what have you been up to lately? Did you have a have a interesting weekend? I did. You know, I've I've it's it's wedding season and I used to be a florist. So I oh, did flowers for one wedding um until about midnight and then got on a plane at five AM to go to another wedding. Uh so <laughs> love is in the air and it's beautiful. Oh, that's amazing. Well, um, what's not in the air at my house um, are kids, because both of my teenage daughters are now in school, um, at least for now. Um, we'll see how that changes with the uh, with the coronavirus and whatnot. But uh, so I have some peace and quiet at home. Um, so thought this would be a great opportunity for us to invite uh, a very special guest on today. Uh, I'm a big fan. Um, he is a researcher and a giant fan of maps. He loves maps. Um, Simon Wardley. Hey, Simon, thanks for joining us. Uh, absolute pleasure. Complete delight to be here. And, and what, gosh, opening conversation, talking about family, talking about flowers. I, I'm just plant, planting a meadow at, at the back of my house. So I, I've just been, I'm totally exhausted this weekend, having <laughs> cut it all down, raking it up, putting all the seeds down. But anyway, fantastic. Oh, Lovely man, but your here. hands in the earth is like so nice. Oh, I just it's love great. having like dirt <laughs> in my fingernails. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it, it is. Um, it's serverless chats. Can we can we just ignore serverless? Because that, that's Let's just, just talk about dumb, flowers. Dumb. Right. Let's just like, whatever you, whatever just you get want. Get on Simon. with it. <laughs> floral chats today. Well, sounds good so, to me. So besides um, uh, planting a meadow, which sounds uh, uh, sounds beautiful, um, what else have you been up to uh, over the last year or so? Well, the last two weeks, uh, I've been shooting, uh, canoeing, kayaking, uh, mountain climbing. Um, a hot air ballooning, uh, quad biking, uh, and lots of eight mile hikes. I, I've had a two week holiday at home. Uh, oh, and archery, and and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, but 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 prior to that, I've been very boring. I've been researching. That's a very boring. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Can, maybe we can spice it up a little bit here and talk about something interesting. Okay. okay. So previous <laughs> to that, I, I I've spent the last uh, year basically looking into industrialization of technology. Uh, and the reason why that's interesting is it's always the industrialization of technology that changes uh, organizational behavior. So it's like cloud compute gets from a product to a utility, more industrialization, you get new behaviors, we call them DevOps. Serverless, the runtime goes from product to utility, you get a new new set of practices, FinOps, and it, you know this is a very old pattern. Uh, so I've been looking at that in areas like space, uh, retail, um, a whole bunch of areas. And uh, there is a common set of changes, which are all occurring because of uh, basically things like social media and more open data. And so we're heading to a world which is much more distributed, leaderless leadership, all this sort of good stuff as well. So that's what I've been doing. Exciting stuff. Um, well, I find it exciting, <laughs> but then I'm a researcher who likes maps. 
Right. And and speaking about maps, um, so I think most people um, know about Wardley maps. And if they don't, they absolutely have to. Now, I uh, was chatting with Rebecca about this before. I keep kicking myself because I didn't take the time to learn maps. And every time I see, you know, some great article written yes. about, um, you know, Wardley mapping and, and how they came to this conclusion and, you know, and, and the theory behind it and so forth, I'm like, why didn't I just take the time to learn that? So um, besides me, you know, and or for other holdouts like like me, um, could you just kind of sum up or, you know, give us a quick overview of what are Wardley maps? Gosh, uh, well, first of all, they're very visual. Uh, so really difficult to do it in words. <laughs> um, so um, uh, most things, when we talk about maps uh, in business, most things we have in business are not actually maps, they're, they're graphs. Uh, the distinction between a graph and a map, very, very simple. In a map, space has meaning. So if you take something like a mind map and you move pieces around, but keep the connections the same, the meaning hasn't changed. Uh, that's because it's a graph, not a map. If you take a geographical map and you take Australia and move it next to England, then of course the meaning has changed. And that's because it is a map. So um, I, I set out many, many years ago to create a map of my business because I happened to be the CEO of a company. Um, I was completely clueless, didn't know what I was doing. Uh, revenue was going up, profitability going up. I was making it up. <laughs> I, I was really worried that eventually people would discover I was completely clueless. So I, I, I stumbled upon this idea that I needed a, a map of the environment. And so, so that's what I built. And it, 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 it's, it's, it's pretty simple. You start off with users. You understand their needs. You understand the chain of components that make up the needs. And then each of those components are a form of capital, and they're evolving through a common pattern. Uh, you start off with a genesis, custom-built products and commodities. And so you can simply position them to where they are, how evolved they are, and that creates your map. Now, again, really difficult to explain in words, but it turns out... Once you're doing, you, a, once wonder, you do you're doing this, a wonderful job, so keep on going. Oh, oh thank you. Uh, well, well, it turns out there's a whole bunch of common patterns you start to discover. There's about 30 common economic patterns or climactic patterns. So these are like the rules of the game, uh, 40 different forms of principles, uh, ways of operating, about 100 different forms of gameplay. And people are completely oblivious to this. So what does it mean in practice? Um, well, I used to run strategy for a company called Ubuntu. Uh, we were 2 to 3% of the, Red Hat, uh, the operating system market against Red Hat Microsoft. Uh, we spent half a million to 18 months and took 70% of all cloud computing. It was over 70%. So we went from 2 to 3 to 70%, cost us half a million, took 18 months. And that was because we mapped out the environment and knew where to attack. So think of it like uh, you've got two, two competing... Oh, I, I, I hate the military analogies <laughs> because everybody thinks kinetic warfare and conflict right, right. doesn't have to be that. But um, imagine you've got two generals sort of you know, two, two military commanders battling it out. And one of them's got a map and the other one hasn't. Uh, I, I mean, you can tell who's going to lose pretty quickly. And right. unfortunately, in um, most of our organizations, we run on what are called stories, um, which are just like, um, uh, well, stories, lots of problems with them. Uh, first of all, it's really difficult to challenge a story because they're highly political because you've got something called a storyteller, etc. They have very poor understanding context so you can't really learn patterns for from them but that's what we basically run it most organizations by and that's what i used to do as well uh, and then i had maps and then i made it all creative commons and then people started to to use it all over the place uh, it's wonderful the stories i hear 
And first of all, don't worry about being um, slow to use again. Um, you know, I, one particular uh, organization, I know, defense area, um, when they came across mapping, they, they used maps to begin with. Well, they, they looked at maps and thought, this is really important, we must do this. Uh, and then they were very busy, so they didn't. And about a year later, they had a bit of a disaster and somebody went, oh, if only we mapped it. So they got really excited and then they got busy and so they didn't. And then they had another disaster and they went, and this went on about six or seven times uh, before they eventually started to map. And that's fairly normal. Uh, I normally say it takes about seven years to learn to map. Uh, the first um, six years, nine months is going, I really must start to learn to map. And the last three months are actually actually mapping because it, it really is quite simple. So don't worry. And, and the other thing is uh, these sort of changes to management methods normally take about 30 to 50 years to spread through society. So we're only 15 years in. So you're way ahead uh, of the majority. All right. I'm probably pushing like six years now of, of saying I've got to learn maps. So I'm getting you're there. You're right I'm on almost... the cusp then. <laughs> I'm on the cusp. <laughs> Yeah, so I would love to apply like a real world application of this mapping that you've done. Um, and you've done it across all sorts of industries and different types of products. Um, but we're here to talk about flowers. So if we could, no, I'm kidding. Um, we're here to talk about serverless. So I'm going to dive in with a serverless question in terms of mapping and how you arrived at the conclusion about the inevitability of serverless. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. And so I would love to see, like, there still seems to be a lot of skepticism around serverless, but you point yeah. out in the past that the same was true early on in cloud, right? Like you referenced the McKinsey report, cleaning the air on clouds and, um, you know, theory was one and the the McKinsey was, was nil. Um, so I'm curious about what you think the reason is for what you and I'm sure Jeremy and I both agree is short-sightedness in that space and how did mapping lead you there what kind of map did you build in such a way where you're like okay now now i've arrived here serverless is inevitable okay so so um do you mind if i show you a map go right ahead is that okay love it uh, you, you because, can show us a map yes. please do I, I i will remember that we're, we're we're trying to do this as audio so i will i show the map and you can you, know, you can take the slides or whatever <laughs> uh, if you want to use them that's great we can put um, in the show notes okay super so this is a basic map so so all maps have three sort of um uh, common uh, components you, you you've got an anchor like magnetic north you've got the position of pieces on a map and then you've got something called consistency of movement uh, and it's those that give space meaning so uh, what we've got is our anchor here is user user needs an application application needs best coding practice built on a runtime built on an operating system built built on best architectural practice built on compute now this uh, each of these components are laid out on an axis of evolution from the genesis so compute started in 1943 digital compute that's the z3 custom built ex uh, examples uh, like leo lines electronic office products, IBM 650, and eventually more and more advanced products, and eventually you get commodity and utility. So everything evolves along that axis. Practices do as well. We just give them a different term, novel, emerging, good, and best. Okay, and so what you've now got is a user. You've got a, a value chain, 
And as you go down the value chain, things become less visible to the user. They're still critical. And each of the components evolving. And if I move any of these components, it changes the meaning of this map. Now, this is a map of compute roughly 2004, 2005. So compute was servers. We've had best architectural practice. Operating systems were not quite commodity. Neither was the runtime. Um, but we sort of had best coding practice. And we built applications. Right, now you've got the introduction, let's go through it. Um, there are a couple of basic patterns you learn, everything evolves. If there's supply and demand competition, doesn't matter what it is, money, penicillin, computing, starts on genesis, ends up as a commodity. Right, pattern number two, uh, past success breeds inertia. So if we get very good at the past, we have inertia to the chain. So we build big data centers, compute becomes more of a utility, but like, oh, that, that cloud stuff is bad. Mostly because we spent all this money on big data centers. Third pattern, you get co-evolution of practice. So as things evolve, uh, you get a change of practice. Doesn't matter whether we're talking about electricity or compute or, you know, so, you know, Fordism or whether uh, DevOps with compute going from product to utility, you get a change of practice. And that new emerging practice gets a new name and eventually becomes the new norm. Uh, another pattern, efficiency enables innovation. As the underlying components become more commodity-like, we build things more quickly. So, you know, bricks to build houses are better than, you know, if you've got standard bricks and standard pipes, it's faster to build a house. And higher order systems create new sources of value worth. So these are a couple of basic patterns. Now, um, I use these to work out where to invest. So, as I said, I was um, uh, running a strategy for Ubuntu. So we could use the map in 2008 and say, look, compute was going to utility. We need to attack there. We need to attack the emerging practice. We don't know what it's going to be called. It turned out it was going to be called DevOps by Andy and Patrick. We know we're going to get new needs, so we need to attack there. We can also invest in building applications on top. But one area we want to get out of is best architectural practice for computers, a product, data centers, all that sort of stuff. That's where we want to escape from. So we could, and this is a simplified version, we could use the map to attack the space. Pretty basic. And that's how we went from 2 to 3%, 70% of all cloud. So we're up against Microsoft Red Hat. They've got all the money. They've got all the people. We've got a map. Bang, oh, we win. Okay, well, all we have to do is sit there, wait, and eventually everybody else catches up. Right. Now, uh, evolution doesn't stop. So the emerging practice continued to evolve, eventually got a name, DevOps, so all that, you know, um, uh, distributed system designed for failure, chaos engines, continuous deployment, all of that sort of stuff. But also, uh, evolution occurs right up and down the chain. So what's happening is the runtime started to shift from product to more of a utility. So we went from land.net stack, all that sort of stuff, to, to, to Lambda. And of course, what you're doing is you're getting the same co-evolution of practice. Because all of a sudden, we've got billing per function. We can look at capital flow in applications. We can associate value to the actual cost. So you get an entire new area of uh, management practices appearing, which is called FinOps. It's that combination of the right. finance operation development together. OK. So this is where you learn another pattern. This is uh, uh, one of the basic principles is the strategy is iterative. Because if in 2008, where would I attack? Well, I attack at the cloud space, the DevOps space, etc. You know, by 2016, 2017, all of that stuff is, is going to become the new legacy. 
uh, where you attack is now the serverless space and the new emerging practices. Now, these changes are never, you know, not, not nice and linear. They're punctuated equilibriums. They're exponential in nature. Um, so the best way of explaining that is with marbles. If I take a big room and put a marble in the corner of the room and I double the number of marbles every second, then in about 10 seconds, I have a nice big pile in the corner. And if I say to somebody, how long is it going to take to fill the room? They probably go, oh, it's going to take hours. Well, no, it's going to take about another 10 seconds because I keep on doubling in size. Mm -hmm. And people are really bad at, cap at getting this. This is why when EC2 launched in 2006, you were saying, you know, it'll take five to eight years to become sort of like uh, uh, the, well, the battle will be over for utility computing. Uh, the winners will be announced in 10 to 15 years to become the new norm. And of course, people are going, oh, it's going to take 30 years or 40 years or whatever, is they're always caught out. People always react too slowly and too late. And this pattern occurs throughout history over and over and over again. So currently, um, well, this is sort of about 2015, 2016. That's where it was. Um, and so today, it's just the same. What, what you're seying is exponential growth growth in serverless and FinOps, and that's all growing. But from a very small base, everybody thinks they've got loads of time because they've got all the inertia created by pre-existing practices and infrastructure. Um, and it's not just computer servers and data centers now. It's also the DevOps crowd and all of that as well. So Kubernetes containers, they're all in that area of the new legacy. Uh, and so, you know, what's going to stop this? Nothing, unless you stop competition. It's as simple as that. Did that make sense? It well, it does, and I have a, a couple a couple of points I'd like to make. One, I feel even worse now about not learning <laughs> mapping because again, this was uh, amazing. Um, two, I do feel like I'm getting a private lesson here, so I'm already I'm already on my way, which is good. Um, so the the map that you were just kind of showing us had serverless as that. Um, Utility, that's, you said, 2018-ish, somewhere around there, um, of where that was then. And I'm, I'm curious, serverless keeps getting harder, right? And this is probably a, a strange thing to say, but it becomes more complex. There's more services. There's, there's, uh, there's differing technologies. There's competing technologies. There's a lot of cloud providers innovating on this stuff. Um, and so I guess my question is, is like, <clears throat> where does that utility go? And by utility, are we talking about like primitives? You know, like, are we talking about SQSQs and DynamoDB and API Gateway, like as, as being these, these primitives that are their own separate utilities that you then have to string together? Or is there some progress that we're going to make where we're going to say, look, all of these utilities can start getting bundled into other utilities. And maybe we can put SaaS aside for a minute and just curious if that's maybe where the cloud providers go. Okay, um, so first of all, when we talk about utilities here, when we're, we're mapping, we're mapping the fundamental concept itself. So what we're talking about is the runtime. So the runtime, when it was a product, was things like LAMP, .NET. We had a long, long period of time where it was very much you know, in that product stage. Um, then what we're now talking about is it's become so widespread, so well-defined, uh, so well understood that we can start to provide it as more of a utility. And that is what you're seeing with Lambda. Um, I, I, I avoid the words like innovation and other bits and pieces because the problem is, um, uh, the problem with the word innovation is the genesis of the novel and new we call an innovation. The cust custom built examples we call an innovation. Every feature differentiation on a product we call an innovation. Every uh, product to business, a uh, utility business model we call an innovation. And so, so all we ever see is innovation everywhere. 
and and it's impossible you know th these are totally totally different things with totally different characteristics but, but we use one word for it so so when you are mapping you're, you're mapping the fundamental concept the thing of what it is and so in which case we're talking about the runtime and that is shifting from product to utility now there's a slight confusion because the runtime as a utility we call serverless but when building a system we need to talk about serverless architecture. So the serverless architecture is not only the runtime, but also the services that we consume as well. Some of which may be more or less serverless. Some of them will be very much in that utility all the way down to zero if you're not using it completely based upon usage, etc. Some of them may be less so. Some of them may be more the rental sort of model, minimum subscription, all that sort of stuff, Not maybe not so well defined. So you have to distinguish between um, the serverless architecture, which is you know the system you're building is going to have the runtime, plus also the services you consume, and the runtime itself, which is as a utility, is what we call serverless. Uh, so I suppose that would be where the confusion is. Now, whenever we get a shift from something like product to, to more commodity, um, uh, invariably, what happens, uh, you know, a de facto, well, generally a de facto standard appears. Um, so something becomes uh, dominant, everybody adopts to it. I mean, various, you know, standard bodies like to say, we're going to do one by du jour, we're going to decide what the standard is. Um, so networks, they went IPX, well, well, it was, um, it wasn't IPX, SPX, that was a different network protocol. It was a uh, um, seven layer model, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> So they came out, oh, we're going to have the seven layer model, blah, 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 none of this TCPIP nonsense. You know, we're creating that as a standard. And of course, they absolutely lost because the market chose TCPIP. So they they reinvented uh, the seven layers. Say, oh, look, look, TCPIP is compliant with it. You know, that's what standard bodies do. So in, in cloud, EC2 just ran away with it. And so if you wanted the standards and the infrastructures, EC2, S3, and this is the problem OpenStack made. They went, oh, we're going to build our own APIs and all the rest of it. Good luck with that. I mean, you just create a collective prisoner dilemma. Doesn't work. You should co-opt, but there we are. And 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 to be brutal, um, Amazon has pretty much run away with it again in Lambda. Uh, at least Microsoft was a little bit on the ball. Um, uh, Google less so. Uh, the rest of the people just out in the field. So so pretty much they're defining the standard, but you're going to get competing. You know, people will go, oh, you don't want AC, you want DC or whatever. Uh, uh, and eventually the market will tend to gravitate and shrink down to hopefully just a few standards. So that's roughly where we are. So separate between the runtime and the architecture. So you've got serverless in terms of the runtime becoming a utility, you've got serverless architecture, which is the combination of your runtime, your code, plus all the services you use, which may or may, some of those will be, you know, more utility, some of them less evolved at the moment. Um, and, you know, we will eventually get standards in there. Um, and those standards will be defined by the market. So it's pretty much Lambda's defining it at this, at this moment in time. Does that answer your question? <laughs> Sorry. Well, I, it 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 answers it answers that um, I need to spend more time learning mapping. But yes, it does answer my question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this reminds me of a conversation I had. Uh, the first person to introduce me to mapping actually was Alexander Simovich. Oh, and... he's fantastic. I, he's brilliant. Oh he yeah. Is, uh... Oh yeah. Him and uh, Slobodan and and Farah actually all 
big fans of yours and I've worked with all of them. And um, anyway, I used to joke with Alexander that uh, by being a software engineer, he really understands the plumbing of the internet. He's essentially the internet's plumber. Um, and he always got a big kick out of that saying like, oh, I'm just gonna go in and do some plumbing. And I'm wondering when you're talking about utilities, uh, in are cloud providers the utility companies? Like, are they the new utility company? Um, or will it be SaaS providers? Will it be both? Is there space or room for both? Or is AWS so far ahead that they are the new utility, they are the utility, especially with Lambda in their back pocket or their front pocket, if you will? But, so, a couple of things. Alex is great. Um, yes, he is. By the way, as a <laughs> recommendation, as a recommendation, Cat uh, Sweetle. It, it, fantastic to talk. If you don't know Kat, she's she's absolutely brilliant. Uh, talk about uh, uh, all the changes that are going on, maps, DevOps, and everything else. And I'm saying this while I'm looking for a book, and I know I've got it somewhere, but I can't see it at the moment because uh, I probably lend it out all the time. Um, so Amazon, uh, AWS itself, created a book uh, which is called Leading Cloud. Uh, oh, I've got, I've got the title wrong. So give me a second. Hang on. So <laughs> you can see what a scruff I look. Uh, da, 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 da. Let's see how I got it. How I got it here. Um, oh, we'll have to find it out. But um, oh, but um, uh, in this book, uh, AWS is the second ever book they created, um, which is all about cloud and everything else. And within there, by the way, there's an entire chapter pretty much on mapping. And in there is a particular gameplay. I see there's about a hundred different forms of gameplay. Uh, there's um, a gameplay known as ILC, Innovate, Leverage, Commoditize. And it's a simple way of basically you take something, which is a product, turn it into a utility, allow everybody else to build on top of it, mine the metadata to spot future patterns, which you commoditize to new component services, and that way you just move up the stack. Mm. Same gameplay China, the Chinese government has been doing since the 1970s, and they're about to dominate the world and everything else. Amazon does this pretty much in the, in the commercial world. So the answer to it, when it shifts from product to utility, does it distribute or centralize, really depends upon the gameplay of the players involved. And the brutal honesty is Amazon's played a good game. Microsoft's not done too badly. Google's sort of okay-ish. <laughs> and everybody else are off the cliff, all right? Uh, so it's centralizing. It didn't have to be. I mean, if exec spent more time thinking about their strategy and landscape rather than playing golf, then, then it wouldn't have been a case that Amazon would have piled in and just taken this entire market. But they don't. Um, and, and so that's the that's the brutal honesty of it. Amazon is moving up that side of the, uh, the stack. Um, hang on, cloud book. Let's have a look. I'm going to get shot. I should know this book off the top of my head because I mentioned in it. I'm just having one of those sort of moments. Uh, <laughs> or I've just forgotten what it's called. I know the authors as well. Isn't that dreadful? If they ever see we'll, this. We will put we it in the show. We'll put it in the show notes. Oh, uh, yeah. You put it highlight. Highlight. It <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> oh, I, I have no shape or, or whatever. Uh, um, but... Uh, Blood, isn't it, Jonathan Blood? Uh, Jonathan Blood. Oh, I've got to get you the link to the Reaching Cloud Velocity. That was the book. Uh, it's a beautiful so, title. It's fantastic. <laughs> so it's a fantastic book, actually. Um, and um, the second ever uh, uh, book by AWS. And in there, you'll find about chapter on mapping. It's about 17, 18 pages of mapping. And in there is the IRC model. 
So it didn't have to be this way. Just Amazon plays the game. Loads of other people had inertia. They're, they're like very dismissive. They're listening to, I don't know, McKinsey saying, you're clearing the air on cloud. It's not the future or whatever. Or it's just for startups, uh, which is where, where it was back in 2010, 2011. So Amazon plows through. They're pretty much doing the same game at the uh, at the runtime. Uh, Microsoft's a little bit more on the ball. doesn't have so, to be this way. Um, but, but, it just you know, it is. but that's the way it is. Um, so Simon, you've, you've mentioned inertia a few different times. And so often we hear about momentum or inertia being a friend, right? But in these ways, it's sort of a foe. Uh, and so I'm curious if you can maybe talk a little bit about that distinction um, sure, when sure, momentum sure, sure. is a good thing and when inertia or momentum becomes a bad thing. Okay. So if I'm selling a product, um, having inertia to change as in driving it to a utility is actually a good thing. Because, you know, I'm selling a product, I'm maximizing my profitability and you know, revenue around the product. And I start building up more and more success. I, I, maybe I'm selling service. And so, you know, I'm selling ever increasing volume, good margins. I'm quite happy. Then somebody comes along and says, oh, we're going to turn it into a utility. We're not going to sell physical servers. We're going to, you know, it's going to be provided on a utility basis. Well, I've got this entire business with my past success and everything else. I'm looking at thinking, well, that's that's the future. That's what I do. If I don't understand how things evolve, it's very easy to dismiss that as, you know, that's just a some startup. It's a bookseller. What do they know about compute? <laughs> a bookseller. I've been selling servers for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. You just get back to selling books. And we have, there's about 16 different forms of inertia, uh, pre-existing uh, business, pre-existing capital, as in financial capital, political capital, you know, existing governance practices. So not only do vendors have inertia, the customers of those physical servers and buyers of data centers have inertia and so forth. And so there is a point where it's good because it maintains profitability and revenue. But once the thing has evolved to be suitable for a utility, then it becomes bad. As in the inertia is the thing that stops you changing gets you to dismiss that future. Uh, and that transition can be like five to eight years. So it's really can be really quick. So it's very easy to get caught out because you get wave of wave of ever slightly improving product. And so you think it's a slow cycle. You've built up all of this sort of business around the product. Uh, and then it gets converted into a utility. You're very, very dismissive. It rapidly grows. And before you know it, you're in no man's land. You suddenly wake up one morning and find out you're IBM or somebody along those lines, okay? Um, so, you know, the interesting thing here, we talk about, uh, people like to talk about Christensen and disruption theory. And just, to, to, you know, Christensen and Lepore used to argue about disruption theory. Uh, Christensen said it was predictable. Lepore said it was not predictable. And the interesting thing about disruption theory is there's two different types. Uh, things like the shift from product to utility is highly predictable in terms of roughly when it's going to happen, that it's going to cause co-evolution of practice, that you're going to get uh, an exponential change, a punctuated equilibrium. There's a long list of things that you can say about it. So it's a form of predictable disruption. But product to product substitution, like Apple versus Nokia, is highly unpredictable. You don't know which way it's going to go which is why Christensen said that Apple wouldn't succeed and turned out they did. Not because he's dark, because it's unpredictable. 
So what you've got with disruption theory are two different forms. That which is unpredictable, product-product substitution. That which is predictable, product-to-utility, so IBM versus AWS. Okay. Um, unfortunately, if you can't see the evolution axis, you can't map it, you can't tell the difference between them, and which is why you end up with these arguments going on about whether it is and isn't predictable. And the answer is there's two different forms. So sorry, that was a bit of a ramble. <laughs> no, it was. I love Deep head nodding. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. Just de- like just trying to process all that. Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Lumigo. We've talked a lot about observability on this podcast, and if you've listened to any of those episodes, then you know that it can be difficult to achieve serverless observability with traditional approaches. Though serverless comes with many opportunities and advantages, it also has some unique issues that some tools just aren't able to address. And those issues really need something meant for serverless environments. That's where Lumigo comes in. As a serverless-first monitoring platform, Lumigo lets developers quickly and easily find and fix errors and performance issues while also giving you an end-to-end view of the entire transaction across services and functions. All of the debugging information you need is conveniently in one place, and you're able to set up alerts so that you know what's happening and how it might affect the user experience. Lumigo also knows how to play nice with your existing toolchain, enabling you to send alerts to email, Slack, Microsoft Teams, Ops Genie, and more, and can also create tickets in Jira straight from the issues page. Thanks to their automatic distributed tracing, it only takes four clicks to set up Lumigo with no manual code changes necessary. Sign up for free at lumigo.io. So it's interesting because again, the I think for most people, um, and, and and maybe this is just me because I'm more in the cloud space now. But I think for most people, they see the benefit of moving to utility computing. So put serverless aside for a minute, but just utility computing and not having to own and maintain your own servers and rack and stack and all that stuff that goes along with maintaining your own data center. Clearly, there are reasons that people still do that. Um, but if we if we go towards the adoption side of things, um, even more down to like just the runtime, as you you know again talking. About about serverless. So you wrote this, uh, I think it was a full report about what's the fuss about serverless. So this was, I think, three years ago now, or almost three years ago. And you said back then that companies should start embracing and start or sunsetting old ideas like infrastructure as a service, containers, and then obviously hardware-focused view of, um, uh, of DevOps. So I'm curious now, you know, with the you said earlier on the show um, that, you know, Kubernetes is still sort of in that, or is now in that legacy thing. Kubernetes is a juggernaut, and every other platform provider that's building serverless applications uh, or building any type of platform seem to be building and standardizing on top of Kubernetes. So, you know, AWS is following that for, you know, to meet customers where they are, it's still innovating on, on serverless. But I'm curious, are, are all these people wrong? Um, I mean, are, or are we just in this weird stopgap where, like, people are haven't quite figured it out yet? So I'll take you back to cloud in 2008, 2009. Uh, When I used to talk about the shift from product to utility and how it was moving uh, uh, to more of a utility that would be a new set of practices, that was the future. You'd have to get out of the data center and out of service of product. The argument was, no, that's nonsense. The future is virtual data centers. We're all going to have virtual data centers. And I'm not just saying that was one or two people. That was the vast opinion, okay? The overwhelming opinion was the future was virtual data centers. That's what we're going to have. 
uh, where this utility compute messages for startups and everything else. So you can get, roll forward to 2011, you know, uh, clearing air on cloud. It's all about you know, startups and blah. It's not for proper enterprises. Proper enterprises use virtual data centers and all that sort of stuff. So can a whole bunch of people be wrong? Oh, yeah, all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> So is that is that uh, so I mean that's the thing that uh I've always or what I've seen lately um and everybody's doing this everybody who is now uh hosting Kubernetes right as part of especially as part of the cloud providers they've all got a service so whether it's EKS on Amazon or it's GKE and IBM has their own one like everybody's embracing Kubernetes but they're also embracing the idea of essentially hosting it for you so that you don't have to deal with the underlying, you know, the the, mm. the, the management of it. And I, I, I always get this impression where, like, are we just evolving Kubernetes with these hosted Kubernetes services just to get us right back to where we already are with something like Lambda? Okay. So, um, first of all, that's lower down the stack. So, Lambda is at the runtime. Okay. Kubernetes is where we're messing around with containers and all the rest of it and everything else. So it's it's further down. Uh, Lambda really is, you know, uh, the whole thing about writing functions, billing per functions, etc. It, it's really focused on the code, not any of the underlying components, which you are seeing, which is where people are. So um, people have inertia. Uh, you ask me, why would Amazon provide uh, you know, an elastic Kubernetes service and all that sort of stuff? Well, because it meets customers, as you say, where they are. Right. Okay, but it's dominating the future space as well. So it's just saying, okay, you want Kubernetes? Well, if you have Kubernetes, it's much easier than you trying to manage it yourself. And by the way, it's dominating in Lambda. Um, so um, do I? Do, you know, do I? Lots of other people saying that uh, Kubernetes is the future; it will dominate. The same story with OpenStack is the future; it will dominate, etc. I mean, uh, bizarrely enough, Docker. I noticed they've just changed their license agreement, so I don't know if you've seen this. Um, but uh, anyway, um, so yeah, um, the future is worrying about things like ca capital flow through your applications, where your money is actually being spent on what functions, monitoring that capital flow, tying it to the actual value you're created. I mean, you look at companies like iRobot or Liberty Mutual and what they've done with serverless. I mean, iRobot provide those rumbers, there's tens of millions out there. Right. I mean, the entire thing's run by six people. I mean, um, that's very okay. true. Uh, um, or the BBC, the BBC started using Lambda. I, I think they converted the entire thing, got it running on Lambda before the Kubernetes team even set up their cluster. Okay, sure, we can make <laughs> it even cheaper by using Elastic Kubernetes server or, or whatever. But it's a bit like um, it's focused too low down the stack, to be bluntly honest. Um, you know, great. I would say perfect strategy if it was 2008, but it's not. It's 2021. Interesting. So I think you're getting back now to perhaps my newfound favorite theme, which is inertia. Um, yeah. And thank you for introducing me to this. Also, real quick shout out to both Ben Kehoe and Tom McLaughlin, who are um, real big serverless proponents, both in iRobot and Liberty Mutual. So that's pretty oh, fun. Ben's fantastic. Great and folks. Um, yeah. yeah, Jillian. So many. So oh, many right. really yeah. Jillian Anderson, that we've yeah, been able to work with. Yeah. Mark McCann, yep. 
Um, just got to throw all their names out there to be like, whoa, Simon Wardley just Check the show notes. You. We'll just put a whole yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I think, well, also you got to think about, you know, people like Liberty Mutual, Dave Anderson, then you've got all the people over at Capital One and things like that. And there's some, right. some amazing, because people often say to me, oh, serverless stuff, that's just for startups. You know, you're just like, really? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Those are anyway. some pretty prolific thinkers in this space. Um, yeah. So, Simon, I mean, governments come to you maybe after seven years or 14 or 21, depending on how long their seven year cycles are, but you're consulting people, whether or not it's, you know, huge governmental agencies, which you can only talk about so much, but, um, or, you know, large companies, small, like people are coming to you for advice. And I'm curious about when, when we're talking about people with any change against inertia, like the antagonist against inertia takes a total mind shift. Um, and so I think there's a, a big difference between wanting to change and then being actually prepared to change, perhaps even as subtle as like it's a map, not a graph. You know, there's a different axes that you need to look at. So I'm curious if you've seen people who want to make the shift towards serverless, but keep getting stuck. And yeah. is there any specific place they keep getting stuck? And do you have any advice for them to get unstuck about taking those first incremental steps that can unlock that shift? Okay, so I'm, I'm going to be, uh, oh, I've been blunt enough anyway, I'll be brutally honest. <laughs> most inertia I don't find in, in people, uh, in, in engineers, uh, uh, people doing the actual work. Most of the inertia I actually find in the management layer, uh, in the executive layer. Um, so where inertia occurs, so I, I, for example, one gov a government department, um, uh, very much resisting the shifter cloud, mainly because the systems had been people within there and their managers were like, you know, oh, we can't do that. Um, because the vendors were in there saying, well, if it goes to cloud, you're all going to be at the job and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it was quite simple just to say, well, look, you know, we don't want to shift to cloud, actually. You know, totally agree. Because the runtime shifting. Uh, and so what we want to do is build up here, which, of course, means that all the people will have to retrain up there. And, of course, that creates a problem because those people will suddenly become incredibly valuable because this was 2016, 2017, they would become valuable over time. So we'll have to make sure we were... And all of a sudden, all the inertia disappeared, all the sort of arguments, because you gave people a path, a path to go. Um, so one of the things I use with maps is I use the maps, I apply economic patterns to it, I look at points of inertia, and then, then you can directly counter. There's strategies for all different 16 forms of inertia that you can counter. But the most important thing when it comes to people is give them a path. Um, I, I hate this when people talk about people as resources or things like that, as like disposable assets, and it's just a horrible way of thinking about things. Um, and I, I generally find that people aren't resistant to change. Uh, what they're resistant to is having a bunch of management consultants coming and telling them they're fired while we're employing somebody else to do, not being given the chance. That's what I generally find. So, um, in terms of um, when it comes to um, uh, adopting service, you've got several problems. One, um, uh, executives like to talk about we have a strategy and it failed because execution wasn't right, which is just a way of blaming other people for the fact the strategy was wrong in the first place. Uh, and so you've got to be very mindful of the fact that you're going to have inertia within the uh, executive areas, particularly talking about loss of empire, you are going to have inertia within people doing the actual work if no one's given them a path forward. 
Um, those things are fairly normal. So it's a good idea to map it out and find people a path and tell people where we're going to attack and how we're going to attack it as well. Um, you're going to have inertia coming from the vendors. The vendors will always tell you that, you know, you can have the future just like the past. So your capital investment, you know, we can make sense of that. We can turn your great big data center into a private cloud. It can outcompete Amazon. They're going to tell you all that stuff as long as it sells them more service. So you, you've got to be mindful of those sorts of things. Um, the um, I, One of the other big problems is, of course, once you get into serverless, you're really tying value uh, down to um, you know where you're spending money. So this is like capital flow in applications. Unfortunately, most organizations have very poor understanding of the landscape, very poor understanding of the value that things create. Um, if, they, if they actually mapped it, then it becomes a lot easier to do this sort of stuff. Uh, this is why you should definitely talk to Dave Anderson Oh, 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 from Liberty Mutual. I mean, that, that's a great example. Or, or Drew, Drew Fermont is a, a, a capital right. one, another great one. Um, so generally, I found inertia always, um, if you can have an honest discussion, and for that, I use a map, uh, and, and we talk about, you know, what's changing, where we're going to have inertia, and we talk about the inertia that we have, and how we're going to tackle these issues, how we're going to give people a path forward. Um, because we're going to need them. We're going to need them just working in a different area. I, I always find it's relatively easy to overcome, as long as you do the thinking beforehand. Right. Okay? Does, do if do you just announce do we're doing this great big change program, it's all going to serverless, and the vendors are coming in saying you're all going to lose your jobs, uh, then you're going to have problems. Okay? So, so I generally find it's in the executive plan. Yeah. yeah. So actually, I got to follow up to that because I'm I'm really curious uh, about the inertia thing as well, and I'm I'm wondering we, a lot of things we talk about, especially with the, uh, technology adoption, is friction and where the, some of the friction is in, in yeah. order to do that. And inertia helps, and you can push past some of that friction. Obviously, uh, vendors creating better services, or you you know creating commodities and things like that, utilities that you can use um, in order to do some of this stuff. But I'm I'm curious because if I'm a developer in a big organization and maybe my maybe my boss hasn't figured out mapping yet or they're not sure what strategy direction they want to go, I can adopt serverless for a small project internally yeah. with very little friction, right? So you know I, I don't need to spin up a Kubernetes cluster or you know buy a giant license to VMware or something like that to try something new. So I'm curious, does that does that low amount of friction, does that play into potentially the, the strategy of adopting serverless from the ground up? And then maybe the, maybe the executive saying, hey, this is saving us money or it's giving us whatever. Or does it really, is it really going to take a cultural shift and a strategy at the top to, to bring companies over? So I, 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 I used to read the Floss reports, uh, free Libra open source software, uh, the, when they were produced back in 2000 and. 40,005. And it was great reading because you get these executives going, you know, we don't use open source, source software. Okay. Uh, but they, but we use things like Apache, MySQL, Linux, but we don't use any open source software. And it was wonderful seeing these surveys there because they, they had no idea what they were talking about. Um, and, and so you'd often get these sort of dictates of we cannot have open source here. Uh, and people would just go and install Apache, MySQL, and all the rest of it and just say, oh, it's not open source, it's Linux. Mm -hmm. Or it's... <laughs> 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 or, or, 
those games going on. So yeah, it's happening all the time. Um, it's a bit like shadow IT and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But look, people have jobs to do. They want to get the job done. At the end of the day, they you know they want to provide something which creates some value somewhere. So they're going to use the best tools they can get. And sometimes people are going to say, "Oh no, we can't do serverless." We um, and so you're always going to get testing examples. I mean, one of my favorite was a big. Um, uh, uh, anyway, I better I won't name the company. So so let's just say they're a TV company, and uh, they launched their online service. And um, what happened is the CIO at the time uh, said, right, well we're building an entire new data center and everything else, and uh, it's going to have all these wonderful servers and blah blah blah, complies with all that. But we're going to have a backup solution on AWS. And on the day of launch, uh, the data center version wasn't working. <gasps> so they launched with the AWS backup, okay? And, and that was perfect. And that's where it's stuck ever since. Now, the reason why the data center version wasn't working is because they never built it. The CIO basically just said, you know, we're going to have this, and then didn't build it. So on the day of launch, failure, it doesn't work because <laughs> we haven't built anything. So we'll run it on the AWS. Thank you, Dory. And it was all running on his credit card. <laughs> this entire sort of <laughs> media stream of this team. So, so hilariously, sometimes you people, you know, sometimes you're the inertia, the responses can be very, very irrational. Right. Sometimes you know, people have to. If you can't discuss the environment, because um, you haven't got a map, you can't really talk about the environment. It's all being story driven. You know, sometimes people will just go, but I've got to get the job done. I wonder, and I feel like there's maybe a sneaky thread between exec level decision makers and what you've said a few times, vendors or vendors or analysts, let's say. And I, and I think also from reading some of your pieces, there's maybe a thread to be drawn between inertia and memory. And I'm going to get around to my question here, which is, are vendors a bit of a villain? to actually making the right decision in terms of they by creating these pieces of content that basically let's say at the very beginning like the cloud is not everything that you think it's going to be they actually embed a memory in a culture of decision makers who are the people that are reading those things and then they're actually taking away from inertia like how do you see when is it perhaps good in terms of like how does someone be healthily skeptical about supposedly what these vendors are are saying, but they're actually embedding memories that could be like um, negative or the, creating the doom loop, right? In, in terms of memory, like cultural memory. Oh, that's, 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 um, yeah. I, I mean, it's, um, um, if I'm selling you a product and I'm making money from selling a product and I'm selling a product everywhere, um, I inherently, my organization is going to have inertia to change, to inertia to the idea that you know that is going to disappear and it's going to become a utility. Why? Because I'm I'm making loads of money. I'm selling stuff. I've got all this past history and past data which says I've been selling stuff. Uh, I've got all these customers building and there's just this little group over there sort of thing doing this utility. So I've got all the reasons to stay exactly where I am. And it comes back to your point: you actually want that in the early stages of sort of you know product. But when it shifts to a utility, once it's become widespread and well-defined, that's when it becomes a problem. So what do you try and do as a vendor? Well, you want to sell them more of your product. So 
you know, of course people latch on to, oh, you know, you know, oh, it's not secure. Oh, uh, you can do it cheaper. You know, if it sells more and more of their product, of course that's what they do. Um, now, if you're a customer at that point, you've got to you've got to say, well, look, I've built all this team, I've got all this practice, I've got all this experience, I've got all this capital invested in this. You know, I've spent four hundred million on a data center. What do you mean I can run it on a credit card? Oh, oh my God! Don't tell the don't tell the CFO. <laughs> <laughs> I've got political capital. I've got empire. I've got all of this invested in this. So of course I'm going to have inertia to it as well. I mean, I, I'm going to want to somehow make this stuff make me look good, or I'm going to want to keep going until I retire. Once I retire, then I don't care. <laughs> um, but um, you know. Um, I, I don't want to rock the boat. I want to keep things going. Um, I, uh, you know, the vendors are telling me, oh, the practices are new. They're emerging. No one knows how to do this stuff. It's not secure. Blah. They're giving me all the reasons for me to stay exactly where I am because I've spent all this money and I have all this capital investment. I have all this past debt. I have all this political capital and I've only got four years to retirement <laughs> or whatever it happens to be. <laughs> right. So all That's of right. that stuff comes into play. Sort of that sunk cost fallacy that probably yeah. uh, creeps in there. But actually, uh, Forrest Brazil has a really great um, one of his cloud cartoons um, uh, points out that, like, you know, the amount of effort or whatever it is um, for when you're buying versus building, but then the regret index that if you built something and have to get rid of it, that's really high. But if you bought something and have to get rid of it, the regret index is much lower. So um, probably also, again, wise strategic move to buy things that are more utility based as opposed to building custom things, which you then own and have to manage and maintain. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, great. So we've got a couple of questions from listeners. I'm only going to ask you one because I know we're running out of time um, from our serverless chats insider list, which people can sign up for if they want to get updates. They knew you were coming on. So um, the question has to do with um, uh, the single biggest objection that you hear from folks when advocating for serverless. So what's that? What's the biggest objection you typically hear? Um, and then in what's your what's your counter argument to that? Uh, Other than it's inevitable. Ones. <laughs> um, it's just for startups, you know. Um, it is they're not? Oh, it's just, that's just the startup thing. And so I just point to you know, Capital One, Liberty Mutual, you know, those well-known startups, um, etc. I wrote about them. They've been going for about thirty years. Um, so that's the first thing. The, the second thing is, um, you know, we we're already invested in this path. Okay, that's uh, just the uh, issue of inertia. Um, the next is the practices, uh, you know, uh, have not fully developed and all the rest of it. That's true enough. I mean, um, it, it's very much you can go back to um, 2010 uh, DevOps. Uh, we had the flag, but the practices were still evolving at the time. So you could make the decision in 2012, 2013, you were going to build yourself a new data center and use all those past methods and all the rest of it because the practices were still evolving in this new world. Not necessarily a sensible thing to do, but um, you know, a lot of people will justify it in their way. I suppose the biggest one is um, is and uh, the biggest objection uh, is this is the story they've already sold. So uh, <laughs> um, uh, the problem, one of the problem is, is if you've got a team of people, you've created a story for why they need to do something. Um, you can't challenge the story 
And the reason why you can't is because there's that entire industry saying, you know, to be a great leader, you've got to be a great storyteller. So when I challenge your story, I am saying to you, you are not a great leader. So I'm challenging you directly. Uh, this is the problem with stories. Um, so that that's probably the biggest obstacle I face. And, um, uh, and what I have to do then is get them into something like a map. Because once I've got them in a map, I can say, I think the map is wrong. I'm not challenging you. I'm not saying you're not a great leader and your story is wrong. What we've done is translate your story into a map. And, um, uh, and then I can attack the map. And then it becomes quite easy for you and me to both gang up on the map because obviously the map is rubbish. And then we end up in a completely different place. So I suppose that's the the biggest one. The biggest, uh, you know, the objection that I have is, uh, the biggest one is is that they've already decided that's the story. They don't want to change the story. Interesting. Makes sense? It does. It does. I, uh, I'm i going to take us on an aside really quick, but I, Simon, especially, I, I have to know. So in that same uh, piece that you wrote about memory, you do pay homage to Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, yeah. And I was really curious. I have to know, are you a player? Are you a dungeon? I imagine you would uh, you would be an incredible DM. And I was like, I, I need to know. The world needs to know if Simon Wardley, if they could play with him. He's so, so I play Dungeons and Dragons with the with the wee lad. I've got the original set and all this sort of stuff. Um, so I, I I love both being a player and uh, 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 and being the dungeon master. It really is enjoyable. I I think it's it's a great thing. Um, so yes, um, uh, but I play with the wee lad as well. And um, actually, and is he a mapper? Does he map? Well, yeah, right. That's you just trade yeah. off. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I've talked to you. Uh, and, and we use it occasionally and talk about all sorts of things in terms of um, uh, um, things that are going on in political systems, etc. Because mapping isn't just about technology. I mean, you do it nation-state competition, you can do it for culture, you can do it about uh, uh, political systems, all different sorts of areas. So so we do a, a lot of that sort of stuff and trying to challenge the ideas. Um, uh, so, so that's quite fun. Well, that's one of the reasons why I had kids so that I could keep playing games and not seem like, uh, you know, I was an adult playing games by myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I have no shame. So I, uh, <laughs> well, I, 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 no, no, play is a really important thing. Um, I, I, I have to say we have this uh, um, somewhat terrible attitude towards play. It is the idea that oh, you should play, you should grow out of these things. Right. Play is critical for imagination and for socialization. I, I mean, I, gosh, when I, I always think I'm over the hill. Uh, so when I was 20, 25, I thought I was over the hill. Oh, I, I, I've messed up something, you know, career's over, blah, blah, blah. I think I was, um, I was having an interview to work for Boston Consulting Group and I, I'd failed in the first round because I wasn't executive material. <laughs> it was just like at 10 years you know oh god i feel dreadful um but um and then when it built and sold several companies anyway so um uh so 25 i thought it was over the hill 35 i thought it was over the hill when i hit 40 it was like massive doom doom i i'm too old now you're too old to be crazy uh and i i i i sort of went back and i started looking into the core research behind this and one of the core pieces of research uh, was they followed, um, I can't remember off the top of my head, I think it was about 1,500 scientists, and looked at the rate of public uh, publishing papers. 
And what they noticed is that they published a certain number of papers in their 20s and 30s, uh, and then it peaked about 35 and slowly went into decline. And then by about 50, 55, 60, it was really dropping off. And so this is where this whole idea that, you know, you, as you get old, you get less creative. Okay. The problem is, if you look at the core data, uh, they hadn't accounted for the fact that people tend to get older as they get older, i.e. they tend to retire or die. And one of the reasons why people might not be publishing might be because they're dead or retired. Mm. And if you actually adjust for the numbers who are active in the field, it's pretty much flatline with a tiny little peak about 45, but pretty much flat. So, but nonetheless, we've created this whole myth, this whole idea that, you know, oh, to be innovating, you've got to be youthful and all the rest of it as well. And, and when, when you get older, that's it, you're completely gone and all the rest of it. Terrible. I don't know why I said this. What was the question again? Oh, it doesn't matter. It's just too much fun. Let's play is critical. You said I'm going to peak at 40. I think you said I'm going to peak at 45, I think is what he said. Um, so I got a couple of years and then I'm going to peak <laughs> at 45. You better learn <laughs> mapping fast. <laughs> I got to go, go fast. I got to go fast. No, 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 no. Well, no. I mean, it's time. You have to get to your, I think uh, the, the figures showed you had to get to your 80s. Uh, I think it was a late 70s, early 80s before you're as uncreative as you were in your 20s. Interesting. Okay, so so that's what you've got to think about, is like you've got loads of time. All right. You've got time, Good yeah. to know. Um, speaking of, about time, we are out of time. So, Simon, thank you. Oh, this has been you. too much fun. And we haven't talked enough Simon, about Simon, thank you. We haven't oh, talked about no, well, We're going to start a new again. podcast called The Gardening Podcast with Simon, and we'll uh, we'll do a whole, we'll do a whole we, thing we, on we, it. We, but... we, could, we could talk about, you know, oh, well, The I, meadow I, tiller. We'll call it the <laughs> meadow tiller. I love oh, it. Well, well, I've got the meadow, meadow um, I, I, you know, I've done all the work on the meadow at the moment. So it's constant doing meadow work. Anyway, sorry, I shouldn't. I, we could go on for ages. Anyway, <laughs> it's been a delight. It's a pleasure. Uh, I hope people enjoy your show. You've been wonderful. I've really enjoyed it. Thank well, you. They Thank will you. enjoy and, you on the show. Absolutely. And if people uh, want to find out more about you, contact you on Twitter, how do they do that? Uh, go at Swardley. Uh, or you can, you know, you just look up Wardley Maps. You'll find there's a Creative Commons medium book, medium.com forward slash Wardley Maps. Then there's a whole bunch of people out there doing interesting mapping stuff. Ben Moiseur, Hired Thought, teaching people how to map. There's a whole bunch of uh, work going on in all different organizations from, from the UN to uh, combating poverty to, you know, combating slavery, all sorts of fascinating stuff going on with mapping. Um, so that's easy to find. There's also something called MapCat. So it happens 13th of October each year, uh, mapcamp.co.uk. It's mappers from all over the world get together. We share maps and all this sort of stuff, share the technique. It's all Creative Commons. Help yourself. Um, so, so yeah, just such a... And there are mapping meetups, right, Simon? A, oh, a yeah. lot of people uh, host their own mapping meetups, so people who just want to kind of get started can even look for their own local chapter and see if they can connect with people at a meetup, right, to even dip their toe yes. in? Yeah, people do their, their own meetups. There's also things like uh, uh, Alexander was doing um, uh, a battle camp where people are doing competitive mapping against each other. Uh, so, so there's often things within companies as well. Um, it's Just remember, the thing about a map, all maps are imperfect representations of a space. So um, if you take geographical map, uh, a perfect map of France would be one-to-one -one scale, which means it would be the size of France. Therefore, it would be France. And as a map, that's absolutely useless. I'm not saying France is useless. I'm just saying a map the size of France would be useless. Simulacra of France is useless. Yes. So, so the point about this is that 
all maps are imperfect representations. Okay, and they're, because they're underneath this is a model of evolution, they're also wrong. So they're imperfect and wrong. But because they're imperfect and wrong, that gives us freedom to challenge. Because going back to the trick of I get somebody to put a map down uh, uh, on a piece of paper and I can just ask questions and I'm saying the map is wrong. Have you got three minutes? I'll just give you one Absolutely. very, very simple example just to show For you this. anything. Oh, that's very kind. Hang on a second. He says three minutes. He takes two minutes and 50 seconds. All right, let's, let's <laughs> open up this. Hang on a second. Right, this is an insurance company. Big company. Uh, this is a process flow. Oh, I've got to hide the bit at the bottom. Hang on a second. Right, this is their Perfect. process flow. Uh, they need compute. They order server. Server comes into goods in. They modify mountain bracket. And uh, they were getting lots of servers. And this is, oh gosh, this is over about a decade ago. Um, they had a bottleneck in their process flow which was to do with modifying mounting and racking the servers. So they came up with this plan to invest in, in robotics. It was, you know, millions of our, uh, our capital expenditure in, in robotics. Uh, and that was going to get rid of their bottleneck uh, and everything else improve their process. They had the business case. They had done spent six months working on this and all the rest of it. Return investment calculations, the whole lot. So um, they asked me what I thought. And the thing is, I can't go, why are you doing robotics and blah? Because that's their story. They've sold. It would be immediate fight. So I said, can we map it? And they went, oh, God, you know, what's the point of this? Anyway, this was 10, 15-minute exercise. Um, there's the map. Uh, user needs compute. They put compute in product. Um, order server, server goods in. They put that in utility. I thought server is a utility compute. Is in product seems a bit odd, but that's okay. All maps are wrong, we can challenge. And they went rack mount modify. And this was literally 10 15 minutes. And I was able to ask them a question Why have you got rack in custom built? And they went, Because we, we may have a company that makes our racks for us. Great. So, what are the modifications you're doing to servers? Well, they don't fit our racks. So, we'd have to take cases off them, drill new holes, add new plates in order to get them to fit our racks. Right. And that's why you need robotics. Yes. And of course, in the room, somebody just went, hang on, why, why don't we use standard racks? Then, then we wouldn't have to do all this work and we wouldn't have to do the robotics and we wouldn't have to spend all these millions. Now, these people were not stupid. They were bright. The problem is they've been trapped by context, trapped mm. by the stories. You know, at some point, the custom built racks made sense. But because they were trapped by that story now, they had no way of challenging it. So they'd come up with the plan to spend millions investing in robotics to basically improve a process flow, when in fact, actually, that's not what you want to do. What you want to do is take a rack and evolve it, use a more standard commodity rack, and then you don't have to do the stuff at the bottom. And this is probably one of the most common problems I see. And I'm not talking small money, 10 million, 100 millions. I'm talking billions wasted in people uh, constantly improving process flow when actually uh, what you want to do is evolve the components in the process. What you don't want to do is improve because it's a highly ineffective process. Okay. And so there's no point in making it more efficient. That's brilliant. Okay. And that's a simple example. And that, that's like, you know, literally they spent six months and it's not because these people are daft, by the way. 
They're not. I, I can think of many examples right now where this would apply to and save people a lot of time and wasted human capital. Um, it's just amazing. Oh, All right. That was well, easy. I, again, Simon, <laughs> thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, it was it was great to have you. Thanks for taking the time. It's great fun. Anyway, it's been a pleasure. Delight. You take care. Keep safe. And that's this week's serverless chat. Rebecca and I want to give a huge thank you to Simon Wardley for being our guest this week and to our sponsor, Lumigo. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 110. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with Rebecca on Twitter, at Becca Odelay, and me, at Jeremy underscore Daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to chatting with all of you again next week. <laughs>